0: on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. As the work on Penny Lane drew to a close, sessions for another groundbreaking track began.
1: John and I sat down and he had um, this opening verse. I think he'd got the idea or or, or we then took the idea from like the Daily Mirror or something.
2: So it had two stories. One was the Guinness child had killed himself in a car. Uh That was the main headline story. Uh, On the next page was about 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire.
1: It was obviously a gorgeous song when he brought it. And I say, I was a big fan of John's. You've got to remember that, you know. It wouldn't just be, oh, yes, a professional person will write this. It'd be like, oh yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on this. And we'd we'd I'd learn the chords off him and we'd develop it. Um But the moment I remember was when um we got to a little bit that he didn't have, where we sort of said I'd love to turn you on and we like looked at each other and think like, we know what we're doing here, don't we? We were actually saying for the first time ever, like words like, turn you on, you know, and, which, had, which was in the culture anyway, but no one had actually said it on record yet and it was a little to the look of recognition, recognition between us like, do it, do it, get it down.
0: Although largely credited to John, A Day in the Life, whose working title at this stage was In the Life Of, was actually a collaboration between John and Paul. While John provided most of the song, it was Paul's middle eight which served as a segue between the various segments. Paul would also contribute some significant ideas when it came time for the song to evolve in the studio, as would producer George Martin and his team of studio technicians. The Beatles gathered in Studio 2 on the 19th of January to begin work on the song which would eventually close the new LP and become, arguably, its most memorable track. However, its early takes were very humble. Engineers Jeff Emmerich and Richard Lush recall how the song sounded that day. So
3: I was down in the studio and he strummed it through to George Martin, you know, because he came in with the song and, and we started from scratch and I went up into the control and I said to so Richard, you want to hear this you know it was because of the feeling that John could put into a vocal and my theory again on this was the fact that being the bashful guy he was and rough and ready when he came to do a a vocal track there was a he got this emotion into his vocals so it was like two different people and I could never figure it out and uh, it was only a long time after you know we finished you know many many years after I guess it, it was he used to think of his childhood and then by doing that, it gave him the emotion to be able to sing those songs because they were two different people.
4: I think Jeff likes Day in the Life. You know, we, I mean, we just love the vocal. You know, and the way the tape echo works on the vocal, and John always used to like that uh, to work with. You know, he couldn't sing unless he had the echo in the cans. So it actually went down with the vocal. You know, so. He played on it, so to speak. He
3: always wanted that, that tw- what we call tape echo, which was that noise. And he used to like listening to the conson- consonants of his voice, like the S's and the T's, you know, in the headphones. You know, before he'd start singing a song, you'd hear him go, you know, <ievous noise> to get a sort of rhythm. Um, mm-hmm. And he just loved it, and it helped him a lot, especially on a day in the life. And we, I think we actually recorded that that Twitter echo at the time of doing his vocal.
4: I mean, I first heard it when in a, in a very basic stage. I, it was uh, John and his guitar, and John's vocal, of course, was amazing. I mean, every time I hear it, it, it just sends shivers down my spine.
2: In the life of, dab so... the mic on the piano quite low. Just, just keeping it like maracas, you know, you know those old Sugar fairy, sugar fairy.
0: Take one of A Day in Life. Even at this early stage, the song structure was complex, made up of several parts which would eventually need to be slotted together. One of the quirkier aspects of these recordings was to utilise the services of ever-present and ever-ready road manager, Mal Evans.
3: And at that time, all he had, John had, was the verses. And he, and he had in his own mind, in a sense, the finished thing, because he knew there were going to be gaps of 24 bars within the song.
4: We connected them with a series of empty bars on either side of Paul's sec- section before we came back into John's as a reprise. And we knew we had to fill those bars with something sensational. And we didn't know what it was gonna be yet. And in order to keep the 24 bars so that everybody knew when to come back in again, dear old Mal Evans stood by the piano counting the bars. And just to add further weight to it, he set off an alarm clock at the end of it to, to trick everybody back into it.
5: Quick move. One, two, three, four.
6: of the them now they know how many holes it takes to build it all
0: of A Day in the Life. Four takes were recorded this day, all featuring Mel Evans on counting an alarm clock, something which was no accident, considering the lyrics of what was going to fill the middle eight of the song. Take four was deemed best, and further overdubs of vocals and piano were added. First in the order of business of the 20th of January was a reduction mix of take four to a fresh tape, and named take six. The song was now ready for bass guitar and drums, as engineer Jeff Emmerich recalls.
3: So the drum sound on that also was, we, we're going for the best drum sound ever recorded. So what I did for the first time was to take the bottom skins off the tom-toms, and I put microphones in glass jugs wrapped in a tea towel underneath the toms. The theory being that you hit, you know, the attack comes from the, the top you know skin and the tonality comes from the bottom. So that, that's why I did, and I tried a few other things, maybe an under, for the first time a mic under the snare, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, I did mic it in a different way, because it was going to be the best drum sound ever, which it was then classed as being the best drum sound ever. We, we try as hard as we could to make the next song even better than the song before, you know.
0: Paul also got the chance to add his vocal in the middle eight, a part which had been planned, but not yet committed to tape.
3: Woke up, fell out of bed,
1: dragged a comb across my head, that was a little bit I had. It wasn't doing anything. And so we thought, well, that'd be good, we could put that in the middle and we got the concept of sort of building it a little bit like a sort of mini operetta.
0: But of course, a major risk of using four track tape for such a complex recording and trying to cram as much as possible onto each track before having to reduce to a new tape was the danger of accidentally erasing something good when trying to add something perhaps not as good in the silent spaces in between. Jeff Emmerich explains.
3: So anyway, I woke up, got out of a, John must have done his lead vocal because that vocal track of Paul's went onto the same vocal track as John. Because when Paul sings the word dream at the end of his song, John's ah voice is uh, at that point. So we told Paul to keep the dream as a short word because otherwise we would have wiped John's vocal beginning.
0: A Day in the Life, this is RM1
1: of
3: 4Track, take... Um, six. Six.
2: Two, three, four.
0: Take six of A Day in the Life, recorded on the 20th of January 1967. The mono mix we just heard, complete with Paul's flubbed vocal, was taken away by George Martin to begin writing the orchestral parts which would fill the spaces left between
4: sections. They told me they wanted an orchestral climax to fill these empty bars. A giant orgasm of sound, rising from nothing at all to the most incredible noise.
3: So then they're standing there and someone said, well, what about a 90-piece orchestra? So then George Martin, knowing he's got a budget, which is ridiculous to think about, EMI's budget, uh, says, no, we can't afford a 90-piece orchestra. We'll have that. So R- Ringo then said, well, let's have a 45-piece orchestra and put it on twice, right? So everyone sort of sneakered and smiled.
0: In the meantime, Paul re-recorded his bass line and middle eight vocal, and Ringo added his piece of perfection with a new drum track, replacing those we heard earlier. By the 3rd of February, the core of the song as we know it was now in place. A week later, the orchestral scores were ready and Studio One was booked for an 8 p.m. session on the 10th of February. 40 musicians from the Royal Philharmonic and London Symphony Orchestras were asked to play on the track at the cost of a whopping 367 pounds and 10 shillings. Sensing the significance of the moment, the Beatles made a night of it, asking them to turn up suitably attired in full evening dress. Each musician was then given novelty glasses, rubber noses, funny hats, even a gorilla's paw. Also invited were some of the who's who of the music scene, including Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Marianne Faithfull, the Monkeys, Mike Nesmith and Donovan. With colored lights and a carnival atmosphere, the Beatles filmed the whole occasion for possible use in a television documentary, thus capturing the mood of the evening. Paul and Jeff Emmerich recall how it all played out.
5: A big sort of epic recording of it with big full orchestra and everything, you know, and then did that crescendo thing in the middle of it with the orchestra which was an idea I'd had, because I'd been been talking to people and reading about sort of avant-garde music, kind of atonal stuff, crazy ideas. And I came up with this idea, I said to the orchestra, you should start, all of you, which they're all looking at me, puzzled, we've got a real symphony orchestra in London who are used to playing, you know, Beethoven. And here's me, this crazy guy out of a group. And I'm saying, all you gotta do is you, or everyone start on the lowest note, that your instrument could play. and work your way up to the highest at your own pace. Just if you want to go That's fine, or You know, that was too puzzling for them. And they're all looking at me, and orchestras don't like that kind of thing. They like it written down, and they like to know exactly what they're supposed to do. So George Martin, the producer, realized that. He kept the random aspect, but he said to the people, you should be about this note, at this point in the song, and then you should've got to this note and this note. And he left the random thing. Yeah, no, that, that, was a, that was an idea based on the sort of avant-garde stuff that I was into at the time.
3: So anyway, we're gonna have this cacophony. So what we de- decided to do with the 45-piece orchestra, we, for the first time was to link two four-track machines together in some really primitive fashion. So the first orchestral take was put on to track four of the first four track, which made it completely in sync with the rhythm and the because vo- everything apart from the the orchestra was finished on that tape. So we we then had to put on a, a second machine with another four tracks, and we didn't. No one told the orchestra because it was well. If you'd have told the orchestra you were doing that, you would have had to have paid them extra money. But eventually they found out and they were actually paid. So we did another take and recorded this next orchestral pass on track one of the second four track, then another pass on the second, another pass on the third note on the fourth. And because, you know, John wanted the orchestra to have funny noses and glasses and God knows what else, and the orchestra really fed up, you know, they hated this session. And the score was just 24 bars, one note here do you start with, and one note at the end on the last bar. And the instruction was where you start on this note, and then in your own time, you reach that note, you know, in over 24 bars. They said we can't do that. We've got to have it written. So you know, George Martin spent like 20 minutes explaining to them. They're still saying no, we can't do it. We want it written. And it was David Mason who played the um, the Bach trumpet on Penny Lane, who was in the orchestra, and Alan Civil, who played the French horn on For No One. They said no, come on, lads, come on, come on. We we can do this because you know, they had a little relation there. Those two members, you know, because they played on Beatle records before. But although it was really under tension that night, so anyway, eventually they do do that. They they, they, they play the part, and because it sounds amazing,
4: and this is what we came up with.
0: The orchestral parts now recorded leading to a chaotic climax in the final seconds of the song it was felt that something more was needed to resolve the song as the symphony men filed out the beatles gathered the friends that had come to be part of the evening and recorded a simple edit piece to be edited to the end of the song here's how it progressed as
3: there were so many guests around there were some of the rolling stones and some of the monkeys and you know there was a lot of people around so it was like a party going on in the studio when we were doing the orchestra. So Paul said, let's try someone going on like that on the end. So we played the track back out into the studio, and all the people that were around did this on, but it didn't work.
2: I die in the life.
1: This is take eight, and it's the choir for the end. Choir? Eight, OK. Eight beats, beats, then. Just like count eight. As soon as you say,
6: on. Um, um. Right. Okay. Just stop on it. Eight. I've got to try and remember.
5: An eight. You lead it. Come on, we're all
1: subconsciously
6: okay.
5: okay. okay. Follow my leader. Okay. What's the note, then, girl? Shall we just all check? Mm. 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 One, two, three, four.
1: Oh.
2: Oh.
6: Oh. Uh,
2: eight. Take nine.
4: Okay,
5: I think we're ready to do it.
4: Take nine. Isn't that it? Ready now,
2: you're not going to check the note. (laughs) Stop freaking
6: out, Mrs. One, two, three, four. Um, (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 Take
3: right. right. <laughs> 10.
0: It will be. One, two, three, four. Oh! Um. Um. This last edit piece formed the resolution of the song, albeit temporarily.
6: Do you like to have a lot of people in the studio when you're recording or
1: do you like to do it completely alone? It doesn't matter. We had a lot of people on some of the tracks and uh, sometimes we use them, you know, uh, ask them to clap and that. Mm. depends if if it's good people uh, who don't hassle anyone and don't try and uh, mess a session up, then it's great, you know, because it's uh, company, good company. I hear you had the Rolling Stones in this session. They came down, because we had a lot of people there, you know, because it was a big session and we wanted to
0: do and make a happening happen,
6: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> And it happened. Engineers Jeff Emmerich and Richard Lush remember what happened as the session drew to a close around one in the morning.
3: Yeah, so Richard and I set up a rough monitor mix that night after the session and... The control room It was number one studio in Abbey Road, um, you know, everyone was just cr- trying to cram in there, you know, a lot of the, the guests that had been asked, and, um, and we played it back, and it was like going from s- square black and white film into CinemaScope Technicolor, although it was just mono, and there was absolute silence at the end of it, again, no one had ever, ever, ever heard anything like it in their lives. And Ron Richards was sitting down here by the side of the mixing console, and Ron was the producer of the Hollies. And Ron, Ron had his head in his hands and he said, I'm going to give the business up. He said, there's way I could ever get anywhere near this, you know. And he was really down. It's, I know it's easy to say what it was like, but you had to experience being there the night we played that rough monitor mix back. It was just incredible.
0: The technical challenges posed by using four-track tape for such an epic recording were a problem to be solved by studio engineers. Richard Lush explains. And then
4: the hardest thing was actually mixing it because we had the orchestra on one tape and we had the backing track and singing on another. So we had to lock those together. The more we put on it, the better it kind of got. And then the problem was we'd put so much on it where we ended up with two reels of tape that we had to lock together somehow. And that was was our challenge to get these two tape machines running together. Uh, And... Because the orchestra stopped between, you know, the first verse and the second verse, etc., etc. If cetera, if it was getting a little bit out of time, I could speed it up a little bit, and then you'd cross your fingers and hope that when it came in for the next bit, it was in time, you know. So there was a little bit of skullduggery going on. Upon reflection,
0: it was felt that the humming outro to the song was not sufficient, given what had come immediately before it so a new idea was struck upon.
4: We got every piano in the building, in the studio, and every person that could play the chord, even people that couldn't play the piano, were playing this chord to make it sound huge. Mm-hmm. So
3: eventually, you know, two weeks later, we put, we put the four pianos on, and George Martin was doing the, har- the harmonium. There's a slight buzz under that chord, you know, and there's a little squeak, you know, because as that piano chord hit, I started to lift the volume of the the, the microphones. It was all feedback to the control room, and at the very—I mean—it was like the longest real piano chord you've ever heard as it died away. And at the very end, uh, Ringo moved his foot, and you hear this little squeak. You can hear it in some versions. And Paul glared at at Ringo. You know. Have
1: you got your loud pedal down, Mal? Which one's that? The right hand one. Far right. Uh,
6: Oh, it makes it echo on. That's it. Okay. So I have keep
1: that off at the start. Keep
3: on Check one.
1: All right. On four. One, two, three.
3: Here Check come. two.
1: Two, three. Four. <laughs> no, just... just. I was okay. the four. Three. No, well, I won't say four. Just imagine.
6: four. One, two, three. Four. One, two, three. Five. Okay. One, two, three. Take six. Alright, don't sort
1: of just play it quite quiet and, and you know you'll know where the four comes in then. Mm. One, two, three. together. Seven. Alright. One, two,
3: three.
1: Take
6: eight. nine. One,
2: two, three. <laughs>
0: Edit piece nine was deemed best and was edited onto the end of the track. The final piece of the puzzle was now in place. What the Beatles had created so far would have been impossible without the patience and expertise of producer George Martin and the innovative team of studio technicians at Abbey Road who brought what was in the Beatles' heads to reality on tape.
4: And then we put the orchestra on and then we glued the pianos at the end on I mean, nothing, no, there was no such thing as doing something normal on that track. I mean, I can remember once Day in the Life was finished, everybody felt very proud of it. And I think John was, John and Paul were pretty pleased as punch with the song and the way. And if, if anybody ever came in, be it, you know, Mick Jagger or whoever, George Martin would always say, oh, can you put on the mix of Day in the Life, Richard, you know? put it on please and so we always used to play that and you just look at the people's faces and they oh, where's where's this going next You know.
3: we knew that by when we, they used to ask other bands into the control rooms that were working in the, in the complex of the studios to come and listen to a finished track that we made and Richard and I used to look at the, the band's faces who were asked to come in and listen to a track and at the end of the track they were just Dumbfounded, they could never, ever believe what they just heard. You know, that—that was the progression of music, but that was there was nothing like it.
1: And somebody spoke and I went into a dream
5: day in life was a terribly bold step did you what how do you think it'd be uh, received
2: well we knew it was all right (laughs) you know we weren't worried about it being too far out or anything because um it was just where we were at and people can be where we're at very easily all they have to do is listen it's no secret we're getting from the hills you know and it's just a matter of course when you first hear any record Mm -hmm. or something if it's an extraordinary one or a A better one the one you know that seems to have more going for it it takes maybe two hearings to to get over the fright of it you know right
1: but if it hadn't been the beatles no one would have listened twice well
2: maybe it would have taken longer you know the beatles educated the world yeah it it was going that way anyway maybe we quickened it up you know we quickened it up by becoming aware of other kinds of music and uh it would have been also somebody else it's not like it would never have happened if uh whoever invented electricity hadn't invented it, you know, like people are inventing it like the same time everywhere around the world. They still do, you know, like you hear some little professor in Russia's invented something new, you know, everybody invented TV almost at the same time and movies, you know. So it's been going on everywhere at once, you know.
0: Well, that's it for this episode. Next time we'll pull up another chair in studio two as the Beatles continued to challenge the conventions of recording and break new ground on their new LP. Until next time.